Infirmary Media. In decades, the Matrix and Blade versus Bloodsport and Renegade. Strap on that cap, bust out the power glove. Come fight for what you love. Who culture popping pins, dropping hand grenades? Van Halen locked in Mortal Kombat with David Gray. Found out ballet in sick. I am made of GNR. Come fight for what you love. Broadcasting from the Bio Bidet Studios, where water does it better. Greetings, Retro Warriors, and welcome to another episode of Dueling Decades. The adult audio retro game show where the 80s and the 90s do battle because it's your history. We just fight for it. Let's take a look at this week's duelers and the decades they will be fighting for. First off, holding a singles record of 1-0, representing comedy of 1982. That's right. Nick Mancrush, here I am. 1-0. About to go 2-0. Sorry, Bo. Going down, buddy. And coming into this match with a singles record of 0-1, representing comedy of 1992. Hey folks, it's Bo Craft here for another uh, week of painful losses on Dueling Decades. <laughs> and as always here on Dueling Decades, we need someone to hold down law and order. So on this episode of our show, I, Mark James, will serve as your judge and jury for this epic comedy battle. Not executioner. No, 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 no one's getting executed on this episode. I don't know. I had a pretty rough day, Mark. The loser of the first season gets executed. <laughs> yeah. Spoilers. <laughs> Tune in for Christmas. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under dueling decades rules. The judges coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five dueling decades categories, movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. The winning decade shall be decided by the highest overall score after all five rounds. Now, duelers, let's play some dueling decades. Let's go. Let's do it. We're ready. All right, guys, for the coin flip tonight, I have a DVD copy of a 1992 comedy movie, which I'm sure nobody picked on this episode. You it thought is, he would have that? It is the Tom Selleck <laughs> and Don Amici classic, folks. You're using that term classic very lightly. Bo Beecraft, you yet have a win on this show, so uh, I'm going to let you call it in the air. Heads uh... or tails? I really wish you'd have picked a stop or my mother will shoot for this coin toss, but uh, all right, let's go heads. Let's go heads. Flipping it. And it is tails. Son of a bitch. So Nick Mancrush, you have control of the board for the first category of Dueling Decades. All right. Let's start with news. Comedy news. Mm. All right. Comedy news, 1982. Start out with a short one here. We're going to go with the uh, June 11th, 1982. After four seasons, ABC has decided to cancel Mork and Mindy. No. The Robin Williams classic television show. But they also canceled Barney Miller and Taxi. Taxi did actually get one more season through NBC, but ABC canceled it this year. 
But ABC decided to cancel those shows and replace them with these. TJ Hooker, 9 to 5, and Joni Loves Chachi. Boy, those <laughs> really uh, panned out well for them, didn't wow. they? <laughs> Classics. Kind of. Kind of a ho-hum uh, decision by ABC here. On retrospect, I bet you they wish they didn't do it. I don't know. Like, what do you guys think? Out of the out of the three there, would you have swapped? Would you have canceled Mork and Mindy? I guess maybe it was getting old after a while. I'm not sure. It was only four seasons. I don't know. Seems like now Mork and Mindy has a pretty decent cultural significance or or is looked upon fondly. I don't know. Pretty much anything with Robin Williams is looked at right. pretty fondly, I yeah. think. I mean, I understand the the kind of the logic behind it. Is it's 1982, and you look at Bork and Mindy, Barney Miller, Taxi, those shows. They're 70s. Right. Yeah, yeah. They're more 70s shows. And what they replaced them with were more modern, forward-moving 80s shows. Forward-moving right off the motherfucking <laughs> network. Yeah, they quickly found out they weren't as good as the 70s shows. None of them had a tits-ass theme like Taxi did, the old Bob James track. Fuck yeah, or Barney mm. Miller. Barney Miller, more, out of all those shows, actually, Barney Miller was the one that stayed on the longest. Yeah. I believe that had seven seasons. Uh, but anyhow, moving on to my second story here. May 1982, George Carlin, he suffers his second heart attack. Yeah, I guess cocaine's a bitch. But uh, Carlin attributed <laughs> all of his heart conditions to his drug habits from the 70s. But anyways, this dude had a heart attack while at a Mets-Dodgers game. And I, too, am a Mets fan, so I know the pain. And then you got the <laughs> Mets plus cocaine. That's a fucking bad time, man. This dude's heart was so bad. He suffered from an almost full blockage of his right descending artery going into his heart. Uh, he eventually had to get... a some evasive surgery to fix all the damage he caused over the years. But that's not the, the real news story. This is just leading up to the news story. So here's a news story. So come October 10th, 1982, you'd figure this guy would be down and out, fighting his demons, two heart attacks in four years. You'd think maybe he was going to take a break. Not George Carlin. October 10th, he performs his one night only at Carnegie Hall and tapes it, which would become... One of his most popular stand-ups of all time, Carlin at Carnegie, and also the first and last time that he'd ever do the seven words you can never say on television, on TV. Huh. Uh, and actually, in his book, Last Words, he said that this was kind of the turning point of his career. Uh, he personally didn't like the show, but that didn't matter because the audience and everyone else did. Uh, it was a huge show. And not only that, like it started his business relationship with uh, HBO for basically the next 25 years. So that would be my second story is the George Carlin comeback. Carlin at Carnegie. All right. Over to Bo Beecraft for your offering for the news category. Well, I got one celebrity that uh, didn't quite make it. Uh, best known as the patriarch of the Brady family, Mike Brady. Actor Robert Reed died May 12th, 1992, at the age of 59 after being diagnosed with colon cancer in November 91. Reed's death was initially attributed solely to cancer, but details from his death certificate revealed the actor was HIV positive. The doctor listed his HIV positive status as a significant condition that attributed to his death on the death certificate. So that was obviously kind of a big shocker, more of a big shocker when it came out later uh, that he was uh, HIV positive. Magic Johnson, baby. Left a big old gaping hole in the Brady family. 
Now I'll give you the round right now if you can tell me without a shadow of a doubt that Walker told him he had AIDS. <laughs> no, he didn't have AIDS. He just had HIV. Oh, okay. Never never <laughs> made it to the second level. Walker could have lied to him. Right. That's true. Right. Walker just tells everybody he has AIDS. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a sprained ankle, man. Hey, that's a nice dog. You know it's got AIDS, right? <laughs> All right. So that was a pretty down story. Come on, take it up. You're, you you got to have something good. Take it up. Too. All right. Well, this is more controversial than it is sad and, and droning. Uh, October 3rd, 1992 is the date. Saturday Night Live musical guest Sinead O'Connor making national headlines after she ripped up a photo of Pope John Paul II on camera during her performance. Tearing the photograph while singing the word evil and staring into the camera, O'Connor ended the performance by stating, fight the real enemy. The act occurred nine years in advance of the Pope acknowledging the sexual abuse scandals within the Catholic Church. A nationwide audience saw the performance, which caused a stir backstage with personnel SNL claims to have had no knowledge prior of O'Connor's plan, with uh, creator Lauren Michaels recalling that the air went out of the studio when it happened. Uh, the audience sat in silence. Lauren Michaels ordered that the applause sign not be illuminated as it typically is after the performance. Uh, NBC received nearly 4,500 phone calls in the following days, not tweets, uh, with the majority <laughs> of callers criticizing the network for allowing the act to happen. Uh, contrary to a very popular rumor, the network was not fined by the FCC over the ordeal. And as of 2016, NBC will air reruns of the episode, but they use the taped dress rehearsal performance instead of the original segment. A week after the event, actor Joe Pesci hosted the program and in his opening monologue held up a picture of the Pope saying he taped it back together, which drew a huge response of applause from the studio audience. Pesci also stated that if it had been his show, he would have, quote, gave her such a smack. <laughs> so there you go. Pesci laying down the law. Sinead O'Connor tearing up a picture of the wow. Pope October 3rd, 1992. Good God. Good thing we started out with news. Starting out on a high note with three <laughs> terrible stories and uh, one uplifting story. Yeah. Well, you know, that's kind of how I look at this round. You got the... Uh, the cancellation of Mork and Mindy and Barney Miller and Taxi and then, you know, Robert Reed dying. So really, both of those kind of cancel each other out because that's just bad stuff from the 70s being killed off. <laughs> so and then you're you're basically looking at the iconic image of Sinead O'Connor ripping up the picture of the Pope on SNL, which if you watch anything that talks about the 90s, that clip is always shown. So that's really an iconic moment. Like it, hate it. It is an iconic moment. And then you have George Carlin at Carnegie Hall. It comes down to which is the most pivotal point of their careers. I'm going to have to go with George Carlin in 82 on this one. Mm. Because I mm. think that Carlin at Carnegie was a bigger moment for him. Whereas Sinead O'Connor, that was probably her most talked about moment, but I don't think it was her best <laughs> moment. <laughs> Definitely not her high point. No. Yeah, talk about a fall from grace. Like, what did she do after that? Exactly. It Not kind of much. killed her career. It was a big moment for her, but it was it was her last moment. So, I'm glad you went that route because if you didn't go that route, I was going to have a big problem with you picking Sinead O'Connor over <laughs> fucking George Carlin. <laughs> I'll tell you that. All right, so that gives uh, one point score to 1982 and Nick Mancrush. You have control of the board. I'm going to have to go with music next. Mm. 
All right. And I try to do my rounds like this. I noticed when we did these one-on-ones, if we have two amazing choices together and one's really long, it just goes on a long time. So a couple of my second choices are much shorter than the first choice. All right. So on this first choice, I'm going to go with uh, Eddie Murphy releasing his first song ever. Mm. And uh, that song would be Boogie in Your Butt. <laughs> uh, not quite as polished as party all the time uh, but this is where it all starts and just to show you and this is why i put this one in here just to show how little r&b was out at the time and how it was just coming up in popularity but it wasn't like there wasn't a ton of choices boogie in your butt was actually nominated for the best instrumental r&b performance <laughs> oh wow at the uh at, for the grammys <laughs> must not have been so, a lot of competition that year then let me let me show you what a uh a grammy nominated song sounds like let me just give you the uh the chorus in your butt put the boogie in your butt put put the boogie in your butt in your butt put the boogie in your butt put put the boogie in your butt that's how it goes and then there's a ton more lyrics but i'm not gonna fucking read them all it's horrible but it actually made it to the Grammy somehow, which is mind-boggling, but it did. Uh, anyhow, let me get to my main music choice of 1982. This one is a perfect example why we use newspapers.com, and we don't just use Google for our research. The internet claims, if you Google this, that this guy's first show was opening for the band The Missing Persons on March 31st, 1982. And in actuality, this talented man opened up for The Missing Persons on April 9th, 1982. And thanks to an ad that I found in the LA Times, I'm able to confirm that. So that's actually wrong on the internet in um, almost 100% of the places I found it. So now if you're listening, I know, don't rewind. I didn't mention who this guy is. All right, I can just picture people right now going, well, I, you know, who the fuck? What are you talking about? Relax, I didn't even say it yet. <laughs> Early 1982, uh, a guy by the name of Weird Al Yankovic uh, he was on the road with Dr. Demento, uh, almost kind of like how traveling podcasts are today. Dr. Met Demento would take a show on the road and uh, they happened to be playing in Phoenix. And Weird Al got to do his little uh, parody bit on the show. And then after that show, an entertainment guy named Jay Levy approached Al about making a band. And then by April 1982, April 9th, 1982, matter of fact, Weird Al's music career was born. So back on April 9th, 1982, the band opened for the then popular new wave band Missing Persons, whose number one song. Does anybody know what it was? Mark, I know the song, but I, I can't think of it. It was. Uh... All right. <laughs> I, I, I don't think most people know, but it was the number one requested song on K-Rock at the time. And it was I Like Boys. Yes, that's what it was. OK. Ugh. And uh, well, they were set to open up for them at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium. Uh, as most people will probably imagine, uh, you know, opening up for a band like that and you're a parody band that that Weird Al's band was hated. And during their 45 minute set, they were continually pelted with bottles and coins that were being launched at them from the audience. Weird Al actually goes on record as saying that he remembered when the uh, curtain was going down that the re him and I'm not sure him, but he said his bandmates were like grabbing all the coins off the chain off the stage or whatever uh, before they got off. Well, hell yeah. Yeah, fuck it. Why not? Musicians don't get money. Yeah, well, this was their first ever gig, so maybe I don't. Who knows if they were <laughs> exactly? Paid. It's an exposure gig. Don't pay shit. You're racking up every coin you can get. So it was probably a good thing that they were getting pelted. But on his way to the parking lot, uh, he was in an interview and he said, "I was walking to my car in the parking lot, 
And this 12 year old boy comes up to me and said, are you weird Al? And I said, yes. And he looked at me and said, you suck. <laughs> and he said that was a capper to a great evening. Wow. I actually wonder where that little boy is now. He's dead. <laughs> yeah. After that, he might as well be fucking weird. Al went on to be uh God. Whenever you think of comedy music, even if you were born like way later, I think the first name you think about is Weird Al. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I'd agree with that. All right. On to the 90s. All right. The 90s. Uh, there, there's going to be just an odd amount of crossover, I feel like, in this episode. Uh, the first musical item I have for comedy in 1992, Jammin' in New York, George Carlin's 14th album and 8th HBO special, recorded April 24th and 25th, 1992 at the Paramount Theater in New York City. Uh, the performance dedicated to Sam Kinison, who died in a car accident two weeks before the recording of the special. Uh, 56 minutes, 56 seconds it clocks in, which is essentially the entire uninterrupted, unedited audio of his live performance. Uh, Carlin often cited this as his favorite and best HBO special and album. I think he said like uh, HBO's his uh, tenure with them was what, 25 years, yeah, right? Yeah, it was a long yep. time. Wild, wild stuff. I think we're going to get you you talked about the crossover. I think we're also going to get a lot of fucked up personal life shit. Yeah. Cuz all these comedians have like there are some dark motherfuckers and a lot of that stuff comes up in this. Uh the second pick I got, oddly enough, Weird Al Yankovic off the deep end released his uh 7th studio album April 14th, 1992. Uh parodies of songs by Nirvana, MC Hammer, New Kids on the Block, Millie Vanilli, also obviously a handful of original works. Album was met with actually generally positive reviews. Peaked at number 17 on the Billboard 200, which is kind of uh, interesting for a comedy and a parody album. Smells Like Nirvana uh, became a commercial success, peaking at number 35 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart, becoming Yankovic's second highest charting single after Eat It. Uh, the cover of the album, also genius, uh, parodies Nirvana's famous Nevermind cover. Uh, Weird Al's naked on it, and there's a donut floating in front of him while he's underwater. <laughs> uh, it was his fourth gold record, actually. Went on to become certified platinum for sales of over one million copies in the U.S. Also nominated for a Grammy Award for Best Comedy Recording in 1993. Uh, and something I found interesting, a fun fact, a majority of his albums up until this year, 1992, uh, were produced by Rick Derringer, who, of course, yeah, yeah. brought us the bangers Rock and Roll Hoochie Coo and Real American, which we all know is the entrance theme of Hulk Hogan. So there you go. Jamming in New York, George Carlin and Weird Al Yankovic's Off the Deep End. All right. So music, we had the release of the Eddie Murphy song and then the debut of Say Weird it. Al. Say it. Boogie in your butt. Boogie in your butt. <laughs> Bo Say All it. right. Boogie. You had the release of Boogie in your butt. Why does everybody keep calling their penis a boogie? <laughs> Respect the song, man. <laughs> Grammy nominated. The debut of Weird Al opening up for Missing Persons which I totally understand where they're going with this. And I'm very surprised and a little disappointed you didn't mention it. Missing Persons, of course, was a band made up of Warren Cucurulo, Dale Bozio, Terry Bozio, and Patrick O'Hearn, who all left Frank Zappa's band to play, quote-unquote, real music. Of course. <laughs> of, how, how could you have missed that, Nick? You Dale Bozio? <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't he the guy that sold VCRs at Circuit City? That was his cousin, Eddie. Come on. <laughs> no, so they all left Zappa to play real serious music, and they go on tour with who? 
Weird Al Yankovic. <laughs> so, and then on the 92 side, you got Jammin' in New York from Carlin, which is one of his best specials. Uh, much like in the last category, I don't think it was as pinnacle as Carlin at Carnegie. But then you have a very pinnacle album of with Weird Al. See, I caught on to Weird Al at Poker Party, but most people I know didn't catch on to that. So it kind of cancels each other out, and we're, we're looking again at big Weird Al moments. I got to go 92 and give the point to Bo Beecraft. How could you? What? You're comparing a Weird Al moment. If my moment didn't exist, you wouldn't have the fucking album in 92, Mark. <laughs> it was a debut, correct? But I think the launch of that album was still a little bit bigger. Come on. He was playing with missing persons. What? And he sucked Are at that you- time, <laughs> according to his fans. Yeah, Kit told him he sucked. That's all the, they, that's all the info you need. They put the fucking band together. <laughs> they put the fucking band together, Mark. Yeah, well, it didn't get good till then. Oh, my. <laughs> he, are you crazy? His number one best-selling song ever was Eat It. It's not even on that album. Well, number two was Smells Like Nirvana, so take that. <laughs> oh, my God. Getting fucking railroaded. So here. that ties up our game at one point apiece, and that gives control over to Bo B. Craft. What category are you going with, man? Oh, goodness gracious. Uh, let's go with television all right what do you got for your first offering all right 1992 debuting three days after the retirement of the legendary johnny carson jay leno would become the host of nbc's tonight show which would mark the fourth incarnation of the late night talk series debuting may 25th show nominated for an emmy award 10 times between 1993 and 2005 winning the award for outstanding variety music or comedy series in 1995 uh, of course, we all remember the big controversy between 2009 and 10, uh, in which Leno left, was replaced by Conan. Leno started a new show. <laughs> Ratings sucked, so they moved Leno back into his old slot, moved Conan back, Conan left, et cetera, so on and so forth. So that kind of marred the entire franchise under uh, Leno's tenure. But uh, he was also one of... I, I got to thinking about this earlier as, as, as we're wrestling fans. I would consider Leno one of the uh, pinnacle parts of the attitude era of late night where you had Leno, you had Letterman, you had guys like Craig Kilborn. Uh, so that was a, a really pivotal time for late night talk shows. I think it probably, probably like the golden era for a lot of people. Yeah, Pat Sajak. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and then the other one I have actually keeping with the late night theme, Gary Shandling's television classic, the Larry Sanders show debuts on HBO in August of 1992. Fantastic supporting cast, uh, Jeffrey Tambor, Rip Torn, Jeremy Piven, Janine Garofalo, and just everybody and their mother as a guest star. You had guys like uh, Chris Farley, Tim Allen, Jennifer Aniston, Terry Bradshaw, Michael Bolton, for God's sake, Sally Field, Jim Carrey, all kinds. Great show. If you're not familiar with the show, it offered kind of a fictional, satirical, behind-the-scenes look at a late-night talk show. Uh, Many critics have called it one of the greatest television shows of all time, with the New York Post referring to it as one of the greatest achievements in television. Show won multiple uh, American Comedy Awards, Emmy Awards, Peabody Awards, and Television Critics Association Awards throughout its six-season run. So The Tonight Show with Jay Leno debuts in May, and The Larry Sanders Show debuts in August 1992. Larry Sanders Show? Yeah, The Larry Eh? Sanders Show. Not The Barry Sanders Show, The Larry Sanders Show. Now, Bo, can you tell me the uh, the famous drink that Rip Torn drank on the Larry Sanders show? Oh, shit. I can't even remember. Wow. 
It's the salty dog, man. Rip Torn would always be like, have a salty dog, you pussy. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do Rip Torn as good as Bo Beecraft, but. It's only at cocktail parties I break that out. <laughs> All right, Man Crush, over to you for your TV offerings, 1982. All right, so I'm just going to rush through this because if I don't win this round, I'm going to fucking drive down there and punch you in the mouth all right so the first one oh man all right so february 1st 1982 was the premiere of the show that went on for 1819 episodes went for 11 seasons and elevated the host to extraordinary heights when he switched networks from nbc to cbs and launched his own late night show for an additional 4261 episodes and 23 seasons and the show that I speak of is none other than Late Night with David Letterman. Oh. Uh, it, which is, there's a really cool story, though, uh, in 82 about Letterman because Letterman had a show in 81 that they canceled early. And there was, as you know from listening to past episodes, in 80, between 80 and 82, cable started to take off. So NBC was scared that he was going to take off and go to one of these cable channels. Like there was rumors that he was going to get an offer or whatever. So what they did was they were paying him tens of thousands of dollars a week to do nothing, to just stick around and uh, guest host every now and then on and on Carson and be a sidekick. So they gave him a WWE contract, essentially. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) I mean, the guy, (laughs) I'm sure they gave him some writing duties or whatever, whether, you know, he did them or not, who knows, but. Essentially, he went on to take over the show. And it's interesting that you brought yours up because all along, people had thought that Letterman was going to take over for Carson, but they right. ended up giving it to Leno instead, or they, they seemed like they were going that direction. So Letterman just said, fuck it. And it's funny that Mark mentioned Pat Sajak because that show came on for only one season and got canceled. So CBS was trying to get into that late night game. So then they opened up their <laughs> the checkbook. And paid Letterman. Of course, that's what I was talking about before. Letterman switched to CBS. And then you had the late night wars between Letterman and Leno for years where it would go back and forth. It was just exactly like the Attitude Era because uh, you had the both of them just raising the bar every week. And, you know, Leno would have some years. And I think towards the end, Letterman kind of ruled uh, the yeah. ratings, but it always went back and forth. A really good movie about that is The Late Shift. I think it's streaming on Prime right now. If you haven't checked that out, it's got Kathy Bates in it, and it's kind of a recreation oh. of the late night wars. It's really good. I own it on DVD, and I've seen it many times. It's interesting, like, researching a lot of this stuff. You you realize how much potential crossover there is going to be. Like, I think the thing was that Carson didn't want Leno to secede him. I, I think he wanted Letterman, he wanted, I think, was the yeah, deal. Yeah, yeah. And just I I think the similar thing was with Leno and Conan, too, when Leno was going out and they wanted it's just all really bizarre, but also really interesting at the same time. Well, the biggest part of the story with this, though, that I didn't really even mention is that they put this show in because they were trying to capture the young male demographic that they could do later on at night at 1230. Right. And of course, that went on to carry on the tradition. And then you had Conan doing the same shit and getting back to what you just said. That's why Conan didn't work out when he moved back to 1130 because you had all the blue hairs that were watching the show to watch Leno yep. and you had Conan on there with the masturbating dog and or masturbating bear and triumph and all that shit. And it just didn't work with that audience because it was meant for that young male demographic that they were shooting for years earlier that they captured 
but then they try to move him back to do it in a different time slot, which didn't work out, which kind of surprises me that it's worked so well for Fallon. But I think that all those people have died since. So maybe that's why it's <laughs> uh, it's shifted. I don't know. It's science. Um, but my second one, and this is why I said I'm going to punch Mark in the face. And it really doesn't need me to say too much about it. He's already fucking smiling. Uh, September 30th, 1982. Uh, this brand new show premieres on NBC about this uh, Mayday Malone baseball pitcher who decides to open up a little bar in Boston. Mark, are you and, coming? Uh, what is that on your screen? <laughs> I mean, do I, do I really need to go further? The cheers starts. Cheers starts. Uh, but seriously, like uh, monumental sitcom, 11 seasons, perennial top five show in the ratings, two spinoffs, huge following, including Mark James, who has a boner right now. And it's safe to say <laughs> that <laughs> this is a meteoric like listen to this. This is how, you know, it's fucking huge on the series finale. They had Bob motherfucking Costas do a cheers pregame show <laughs> prior yeah. to the final episode. It was awesome. And he got pink eye. <laughs> it's wild. That's why he won the Emmy. God damn it! <laughs> All right, so those are my two choices. You got the uh, the David Letterman stuff, and then uh, Cheers. Visita Sprint esta semana y encuentra las mejores ofertas. Apresúrate y visita una tienda Sprint hasta el 26 de enero y recibes por cuenta nuestra el nuevo iPad con una pantalla retina más grande de 10.2 pulgadas y teclado inteligente. Además, te damos 100 dólares al cambiarte. iPad de séptima generación con 32 gigas por 0 dólares al mes luego de crédito mensual de 19 dólares con 17 centavos que se aplica dentro de dos facturas por 24 meses. Con verificación de crédito y nueva línea en plan elegible. Si cancela temprano, el saldo restante será exigible. Impuestos se pagan al momento de la venta. Requiere teléfono activo en la cuenta. Con tarjeta Mastercard prepagada que se envía luego de traspaso. Inscripción en línea y 60 días de servicio en una nueva línea. Jeez, this is a this is a closer round than you think, but uh, you know this is the ultimate battle between the '80s and the '90s. I got to go with the '90s. Wow, are you f not? Oh, oh, yeah. I was getting ready was to leave. Be, I was gonna be shocked. No, I got to go with '82 on this one. It it is pretty close because you got the Letterman thing and the Leno. Those kind of cancel each other out. Although I believe the Letterman moment is a little bit bigger. I was more of a Letterman Dude, guy than I was a Leno. Even if you tie those. Yeah. It, if you tie those. I mean, fucking Cheers versus Larry Sanders, dude. Now, Cheers, my all-time favorite TV show, hands down. Larry Sanders show, though, very great show. That's one of my top 10 all-time comedy shows. So, Bo Beecraft, fantastic pick with that one. It's a quality program, man. That's the uh, initial reason I got HBO Go or whatever their uh, streaming app is, is to watch the Larry Sanders show. So, yeah, Man Crush, there's really nothing in comedy that's going to be cheers. Not in my book. I don't know if that's playing to the judge, but you get the point on this one. All right, Man Crush, you are up two points to one. 1982 in the lead for comedy. All right, so we're going two-point rounds here, so I'm going to skip to Hot Products for my first two-point round. I know this is one of Bo's favorites. Mm -hmm. Is it ever? All right. Uh, I mentioned this one a little bit earlier, but I'm going to go over it again in a little bit more depth now. So it's November 6, 1982. We get the debut album by one of the funniest men of the 1980s. This is like when you think about this guy, it's like the Michael Jordan of comedy for like quite a while, like a good 10 year span. And of course, I'm talking about Eddie Murphy. I mean, this guy was like everywhere on TV. His stand up specials were selling out freaking arenas. And not just one, like all, like all of them. This guy was massive. 
he had his fall off for a while, came back, and then did a tranny or something. I don't know, something weird happened. Who hasn't been there? Yeah, yeah, I know. It's you know whatever. Do your thing. Uh, but this album right here, it's a self-titled Adam album. Uh, Eddie Murphy. Uh, went on certified platinum. Uh, received two Grammy nominations. One, like I said before, which was the best R&B instrumental performance. But it also was nominated for the best comedy recording as well. Uh, and all this was accomplished by a guy that was only 21 years old at the time. Wow. I didn't realize he was that young. Yep. Wow. It's pretty crazy. A 21 year picture, the 21 year old <laughs> that are running around today. We just watched the, uh, the unveiling of the new jets Jersey, <laughs> that guy, Max, who they had play like that dude was probably 21. Yeah. That pales in comparison to fucking eddie murphy i mean this dude was doing crazy shit by crazy shit you mean below oh they all these guys <laughs> were doing blow and that's why i mentioned before like you had uh carlin who was doing blow all through the 70s and that attributed to his heart condition and then the next guy that i'm going to talk about he did all kinds of shit and then of course i'm sure fucking eddie murphy was doing blow too but he was in blow no <laughs> if you're doing an 80s and 90s comedy battle and the discussion of blow doesn't come up at some point, you're doing 80s and 90s comedy a great misjustice. Yeah, that fueled every every aspect of comedy for decades. It really did. But this is this is this album right here that I'm going to go over is where that shift happens because before this point, a lot of comedy was very I don't want to say vanilla, but it wasn't as dark as this was, and that led for an entire generation going forward of like dark comedy comedians, like really like uh, self-perspective things, like just digging into themselves. And that was part of their show. Uh, so my first choice was a debut album, but my second choice happens to be this guy's 17th album. And not to mention it had a simultaneous movie release by the same name that actually has a perfect 100 score on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, it also brought in $36 million at the box office. And the album won the Grammy for Best Comedy Recording of 1982. Uh, the other one was nominated for, but this one actually won. And this is Richard Pryor's Live on Sunset Strip. Mm. The album in question, if uh, if you haven't been able to figure that one out, that's what it was. Uh, but uh, Live on Sunset Strip went on to be certified gold. Without a doubt, Richard Pryor is probably one of the most decorated stand-up comedians of all time. It, but in this stand-up, like I was talking about before, he talks about things like setting himself on fire while he was yeah. mixing uh, crack cocaine and shit like that. Yeah, free basin, right? Yeah. I mean, you didn't get that before. And like this thing, it was a hilarious stand-up. And it still holds up. If you watch it now, it's really funny. But it's really honest. It is. And it was the kind of the first time you were getting that. You rarely saw where entertainers were giving like a frank, unforgiving account about the lows in their life. And that's what he did. He made this thing amazing. So if you, if you've never seen this, I highly recommend it. Go to, it's probably on prime. I'm sure, but definitely worth checking out. So my picks, you got the uh, Eddie Murphy debut album and then Richard Pryor's live on sunset strip off to you, Bo. All right. Uh, hot products, never a real great category for me. So I picked uh, some hilarious fads or duds of hot products for this category in 1992. I'll kick it off with Crystal Pepsi, Ooh. the hilarious dud of a product that debuted in December 92 as the result of a popular marketing fad known as the clear craze, uh, which really equated clarity to purity, which is horseshit. 
Uh, Crystal Pepsi marketed as a caffeine-free, clear alternative to normal colas using the slogan, you've never seen a taste like this. Coca-Cola responded with the release of Tab Clear Cola shortly after. Uh, In case you wanted to barf today, Coca-Cola's previous clear soda had been a secret one-off made as a particular political favor between Dwight Eisenhower and the Soviet Union in the 1940s to disguise the American beverage as vodka, and it was named White Coke. Hilarious, right? What a crack up. Uh, Anyway. (laughs) See, it's all tying in. Yeah, it's perfect. Crystal Pepsi died in late 1993, uh, which Coke's chief marketing officer stated that Tab Clear was an intentionally kamikaze effort to create an unpopular beverage to be positioned against Crystal Pepsi in order to kill them both in the process. So in essence... Coke created their own shitty clear soft drink as a, a sacrificial <laughs> lamb of sorts to not only rival, uh, but obliterate the competition in Crystal Pepsi. Now, Crystal Pepsi has returned a handful of times since people obviously yearn for nostalgia, much like our listeners and fans here on Dueling Decades. But, uh, you know, nothing is worse than the time we're currently living in. So Crystal Pepsi can make it all better. <laughs> now, the second hot product oh, I of thought 1992. That was no, no, no. Uh, second hot product of 92, one that I laughed at a lot as an adolescent. Uh, I fondly, not fondling, recall this popular hair removal product based on its name alone, which always incited a chuckle in four-year-old me, uh, because NADS meant your testicles. I'm talking about NADS hair removal. Uh, NADS was developed in 92 by Australian businesswoman Sue Ismiel. Product was a tub of natural green colored gel consisting of honey, molasses, sugar, and lemon juice. I'm sure there were other like additives and stuff in there, but acid. Yeah. <laughs> like all great businesses, NADS started in a garage and eventually became a big deal and sparked an international marketing campaign. Uh, five years following its release, NADS was noted by British newspaper The Guardian as the best selling personal care product in Australia with a turnover, which I'm guessing means profit, of $7 million. The Sydney Morning Herald named it Australia's best-known hair remover uh, because apparently they don't have nair down under. Uh, The company was more recently uh, finding success with a handful of laser hair removal clinics across Sydney, which were acquired in 2015. So there you go. Crystal Pepsi and NADS. I'm actually curious here, and I thought you were going to say the Floby. Oh, man. Did the Floby come out in 92? I don't know. But when you started saying hair, and that was the first thing I thought about. No, I think the Floby goes back into the 80s. That's Does it? I just remember from Wayne's World, the suck cut. The suck cut. It sucks. It really sucks. That's something I wish I could find out picking. But would you use it? Yeah, I think I would try it just because, <laughs> you know. He, he's going to suck cut his bush. <laughs> it's better than waxing. Oh, yeah. Don't use nads on your nads. <laughs> That's what a lot of people thought it was for. Yeah, it was for your, it's for your nads. All right, so let's take a look at hot products. Uh, 1982, you had the debut album from Eddie Murphy and then Richard Pryor live on the Sunset Strip, which is probably his greatest performance. You know, I think uh, you're right about that. It was a turning point in comedy where comedy all of a sudden got honest. Instead of putting on an act, you were just going out there and just uh, kind of exposing your soul in a funny way. And can I add to that as well? Like, this is almost the point to where he set himself on fire. Yeah. And this was a raunchy stand up, 
But then when he went to movies, he really cleaned up for the movies. It yeah. went PG. You know, Brewster's Millions and, of course, Superman. Yeah, his stand-up was, uh, was really honest at that time. I, uh, I 100% agree with that one. You know, and, and then Eddie Murphy, uh, his debut album, not his best album. I don't think he would hit his years for his peak for a couple more years, but huge, huge album for him. Um, I think that really set up his career. I don't think we would have had the other great performances such as Raw, Delirious, everything else he did after that if it wasn't for this, of course. The timing was there. If you listen to this album, if yeah. you go back, it's on it's on Spotify. Just listen to track two. It's called Buckwheat. Yeah. It's fucking hilarious. And Classic. You, you just so know where the rest of his career is going to yep. go, and it's, it's so good. Yeah, it's like watching him on an early SNL. He hadn't found it yet, but he was there, and you, you knew that the, there was so much talent there at that age. Well, let me just ask you, delirious or raw? <sighs> delirious. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to agree there. Yeah, I got to go. What delirious. about you, Bo? Yeah, I, was, I always thought that raw was better, right. especially on Monday nights. <laughs> <laughs> Not in 2019. All right. So and then let's talk about 92. We got Nad's hair removal gel. We're just going to cancel that one out because, well, it's Nad's hair removal gel. But Crystal Pepsi, that's got some legs to it. I really love me some Crystal Pepsi. I was shattered when they got rid of it. I think the problem with Crystal Pepsi was marketing. They called it Crystal Pepsi, yet it tasted nothing like Pepsi. So people hated it. If it would have had a totally different name and not Pepsi, it might have taken off. But I really liked it. But I mean, hands down, you got to go with 1982 on this one. Two yeah, monumental I don't, I don't albums. Argue with that. I mean, we're talking comedy here. So, yeah, I mean, Nads is pretty funny, but uh, you got to go with uh, Richard Pryor, who probably should have used some Nads. <laughs> <laughs> he probably tried to smoke it at one point. Probably. That was actually in the mixture that set him on fire. <laughs> That's, what he That's why I'm tell so you. great at removing hair. Oh, that's it. I got it. (laughs) Just add fire. (laughs) Fire. Nads. Light it up. What's the score? What are are we at right now? I think it's three to one, right? Oh, so that is a win. So we're just, this is a bonus round. Garbage. That's right. We go to the movies round just to round it out here. I'm still a little upset. This should be a shutout, Mark. You fucking, God damn it. Picked a goddamn fourth album over debut. But okay, I won't be bitter. I didn't mean to finish up with movies like John Cross is here. It's just this is the way it panned out. Yeah, we always <laughs> seem to finish up with movies because it's usually one of the stronger categories. So it's more interesting than hot products, I think, sometimes too. So you don't want to end on that note, kind of like how we started on news that sucked. Uh, but that's what happens with round one. Round one usually sucks. You want to get rid of your shit. Because you don't know if you're going to win or not. But anyhow, moving on to movies. Um, let me start with this one, I suppose. Um, you know, you usually don't see a lot of comedies get an Oscar. And typically, I don't care about comedies that get Oscars because I think that they're usually just pretentious and boring. However, on December 17th, 1982, you had a groundbreaking comedy that was released. And uh, Jessica Lange even went on to win an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress in this one. And this movie was nominated for nine other Oscars. Nine for a comedy, including Best Picture, Best Actor, 
And then a second Best Supporting Actress, Terry Garr. Uh, she didn't win, obviously, but two actresses up for Supporting Actress from the same movie the same year. It's insane. And on top of all that, it went in to make $172 million in the box office. That's close to $500 million in 2019. And if you haven't figured out the movie I'm talking about here, it's Dustin Hoffman playing a female, female actress in the smash hit Tootsie. Mm. I'd say this movie is totally irrelevant today. Uh, this was 1982 you're talking about. Yeah. And th- so this is groundbreaking stuff. You have a major Hollywood star in Dustin Hoffman acting as a woman in the movie. And obviously this is probably the best gender flipped comedy and shit. It's probably the best gender flipped any movie of all time. And it was done 37 years ago. You know, uh, this like, I don't know. Have you seen boo of Medea Halloween? Okay. All right. Let's just stop. Um, <laughs> ruining my flow here, but it, seriously, if you flip this around, if you did this movie in 2019, I think nobody would really care. And it wouldn't have taken in $172 million. But the fact that this was done in 1982, it was almost taboo because you really didn't see shit like that happening that often. And it wasn't that accepted. Like now it's so accepted that I don't think people would care. It would just be like, oh, cool. You're dressing up as a chick and whatever. Right. Seen that. But 1982, this was a big deal. And if you think about it, maybe this led to just one of the guys bonus maybe 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 all right so that's my first pick my second pick august 13th 1982 it's a release of a movie that's basically it's like the cornerstone for all 1980s high school movies if you're a little bit younger and you never had any siblings in high school in the 80s fast times richmond high is where you start this movie is like the creme de la creme of 80s high school movies shit it's like the creme de la creme for all high school movies. You got Cameron Crowe screenplay of this movie is incredible. Even though it's 40 years old, it's still entertaining. There's no cell phones or shit like that, but this movie holds up because all the shit that was going on in the high school is actually shit that you would see going on in high school at any point going forward from 1982. Chicks getting pregnant, crazy shit going on during rally, the stoner in the class. I don't know about ordering the pizza to the classroom and getting through security, but that might have just uh, been a 1982 thing. But this movie took in 27 million bucks in 1982, roughly 72 million in 2019 on a $4 million budget. And those are awesome comedy numbers. But then you also had Sean Penn, Jennifer Jason Lee, Judge Reinhold, Phoebe Cates, Forrest Whitaker, and uh, Phoebe Cates' tits. They were all pretty much unknowns at the time. And they, it just catapulted their careers. I mean, Mark, we had an episode, and if you go against me on this, I'll get it back and play it. You even go on record <laughs> saying that the number one topless scene of all time in a movie is Phoebe Cates from the uh, scene. Oh, absolutely. Jennifer Jason Lee's uh, topless scene is isn't that shabby either. Yeah, it's although it uh, makes me a, feel a little dirty. It does, but they were probably in their twenties <laughs> at the time when they, they did this movie. <laughs> But even as like a, it's a comedy, but it's a drama. But like some of the stuff is so timeless. Like that scene that I'm talking about now with Phoebe Cates, how he's like watching her from the window and he's daydreaming it. And then she walks in on him beating off while he's wearing his long John Silver's uniform. Who hasn't been there? Yeah. Gold, man. Every time I'm in a pirate's uniform, I have to beat off in a bathroom. Every oh, yeah. time. Never fails. 
All right, so that that's 82. Tootsie, Fast Times. Solid picks, Man Crush. Uh, Tootsie, really interesting movie because you had Dustin Hoffman, who had really done some serious roles and some comedy. You know, you had, you had him coming off All the President's Men just a few years back, and then he goes and does Tootsie. It's comedy, but he's still got a chance to show his acting chops. And Fast Times, that's a classic. So, uh, Bo B. Craft, so what do you got? Comedy movies, 1992. There's just a, a common thread of Joe Pesci in all my picks uh, this this episode. Uh, so I'll start off with May 15th, 1992. The third installment in the Lethal Weapon franchise reunites Danny Glover and Mel Gibson. Alongside supporting cast members, including Joe Pesci and Rene Russo, met with mixed reviews, but made a box office total of $321.7 million with a budget of $35 million, the fifth highest grossing film of 1992 and the highest grossing film in the Lethal Weapon franchise. Well, that's the fifth of 92. Yeah. Fifth highest grossing. That's huge numbers for 92. Shit. Uh, and then number two, another classic Home Alone 2 Lost in New York. Uh, another sequel in what would become a lengthy franchise and just another 1992 classic featuring none other than America's favorite drunken uncle Joe Pesci. Uh, it's also, to my knowledge, the only Home Alone title to feature a cameo by a future American president. Uh, released November 20th, 1992, the film grossed a $359 million total at the box office. And though it was met with mixed to less than favorable reviews, the film was still considered a holiday classic and can be found on every fucking channel from November to January. Can you add Joe Pesci to the NAD story just to keep <laughs> continuity with the rest of 92? In 1992, Joe Pesci helped co-develop NADS, an Australian <laughs> hair removal product that also burned the hair off of comedian Richard Pryor. Well, it was actually developed uh, during the making of Home Alone when they were trying out all the different products. Yeah, there you to, go. Uh, all the uh, remove the, the hair from his head with the, when they did it with the blowtorch. Right. Yep. Yeah. Fantastic. Wow. Tied so, together. Okay, I feel complete now. So here we go. Movies. We have Tootsie and Fast Times at Ridgemont High versus Home Alone Two and Lethal Weapon Three. Wow. Uh, He's Lethal got cop killer bullets. He does. I love Lethal Weapon 3. Uh, usually the sequels are a shit show, but with the Lethal Weapon franchise, I enjoyed them. I liked them. I actually like Lethal Weapon 3 more than I like Beverly Hills Cop 3. What about Cop and a Half? Oh, so. yeah, Beverly Hills Cop 3 is <laughs> fucking terrible. The problem with uh, Lethal Weapon 3 is the franchise, in a lot of people's eyes, went up in the sequel for 2. Yeah. A lot of people see 2 as the best of the franchise. And then you go back down, and obviously it's worse than the beginning. I won't say worse, but it's not as good as the original. So it's it gets looked at a little funny because of the, the trajectory. Did they make it to four or five? Gonna... They made a four. That was the one with Jet Li. Yeah. Which I like that one, too. Yeah, two is the best just because of Patsy Kinsett. I'll give two the slight nod just because of her. I'm a purist. I got to go with the first. Script-wise, the third one might be the best. It takes a, a slightly different tone than the first two. I think that's where most people were thrown off. And Tootsie, I mean, that's just a classic. And then we look at 92, uh, Home Alone 2. Wow, that's just a horrible movie right there. That's just bad all around. 
Um, and then Lethal Weapon 3, but I got to go 82 just because of Fast Times at Ridgemont High. That is such an American classic movie. When you talk about comedies, and that's what we're talking about in this battle, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, one of the top comedies of all time. You got to go Fast Time. That's going to give Nick Mancrush an overwhelming victory in this one of a score of 6-1. to one. Or, or seven to nothing I if you're not insane. So damn good all day about this. Like I thought I had a legitimate chance, but Jesus, I'll be damned if I didn't lose again. It's the classic guys that I had. I mean, Murphy, fucking Carlin, Pry. You just, it's probably three of the top ten ever. You yeah. know, it's really hard to. As soon as I picked out some of these things, I was like, this is gonna be a landslide. And then Mark had to go and give you a round. So <laughs> <laughs> the pity points. I hold true to my judgment. I think that was a fair call. But hey, you guys decide. If you're listening to this episode and you think I'm full of shit, drop us a line on social media, facebook.com forward slash dueling decades. Let us know what you think about the show. Remember, you can always subscribe and review on Castbox and on iTunes. Hey, let me throw this out there, Mark. If you guys go and you're buying anything, it just it made me think of it because WrestleMania is coming up this weekend. Oh, yeah. If you're going to any event, a concert, WrestleMania, fucking MMA, whatever the hell it is, anything where you're getting tickets, go over to SeatGiant.com and use the promo code DECADES and you'll get a discount. Their tickets are already discounted, so if you use the code on top of it, who knows? You might get two bucks off. You might get 20 bucks off, but you're getting something off. Have a beer on us. Use the code decades at seatgiant.com. Awesome. Yeah. New partnership with Seat Giant. Thanks, Man Crush. That's going to save all of our listeners a ton of cash. I mean, I'm going to the dead this summer. I wish we would have had this partnership with Seat Giant before I would have bought my dead tickets because, man, I would have saved a shit ton of money. I'll tell you that. So we'll give this victory to Nick Mancrush. That moves him undefeated 2-0 in our singles division, Bo B. Craft. His record drops down to 0-2. Damn. Will Nick Mancrush <laughs> turn into the Bill Goldberg of the Dueling Decades universe? Mm. Find out next week. So until next time, duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Infirmary Media. This is no ordinary sub shop. This is Firehouse Subs. Welcome to Firehouse. Tired of overpriced lunches that underdeliver on flavor? Head to Firehouse Subs, where for a limited time you can get a $4.99 choice sub. Choose from a medium smoked turkey, Virginia honey ham, or roast beef. They're custom-made hot subs at a price ready-made to make you smile. Just $4.99, only at Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs, save more lives. Participating locations plus tax limited time offer prices may vary for delivery.